Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I am your co-host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in the beautiful studios in South Bend, Indiana, and sitting across from me in the virtual studios in his own home in Portland, Oregon, is the man who was the inspiration for the character Colonel John Hannibal Smith. Shockingly, not the inspiration for B.A. Baracus in the 1980s hit TV show, The A-Team. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. <laughs> hey, Ken, how you doing? I am well, thank you. I love it when a plan comes together. That was that was a fun show, the eighteen. Oh my gosh, it was great. Every yeah. every week we would gather around the television and, and watch that, you know, as kids and then of course, you know, we always had to go out with my friends and on our bikes and ride around and try to be our own uh, heroes of the Los Angeles underground, which, of course, none of us were ever in the army or ever did anything illegal, nor were condemned to prison by a military <laughs> court for a crime we did not commit. So at least we got that going for us. Yeah. So all you younger listeners, you probably have to go to YouTube to look up what we're talking about <laughs> here. So. <laughs> well, fortunately for kids these days, though, of course, there was the uh, there was a film made of the A-Team that apparently was terrible. Oh, that's right. Apparently it was a terrible film. But, uh, yeah, they they know maybe certainly everybody knows who Mr. T is. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. indeed. Uh, so what's uh, what's been going on, my friend? Here we are midway through the month of May. And, uh, you know, what's what's going on in your world? You've got some travel coming up. Yeah, yeah, I've been enjoying this time, this little break in my schedule, and now I'm ready to head out again. This this next weekend, I'll be heading to uh, Croatia, and Bosnia, and Montenegro, and Italy, with Father Leo Padalinghug. Wow! You know, uh, we we've been friends for a long time. We cooked together on his show, you know, savoring the faith, and uh, so now we're going on pilgrimage together. So I'm very excited. That's awesome. Now. Will you be going to where? Where will you be going to these in these places? Croatia and and Bosnia and Italy. Yeah. So uh, Father Leo, well, his his degree is in Mariology. Okay. So we're going to kind of be focusing on Mary, Blessed Mother, during this thing. So part of where we're going is to Medjugorje. Now, I might it's not an approved apparition. I myself am skeptical, quite frankly, about that. Sure. But you know, I'm I'm going to go. You know, and uh, we'll we'll see. You know, I'll be able to have my uh, a personal experience now with the place. Um, so it'll 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 be cool. We're going to go to Dubrovnik as well. We're going to go to uh, Zadar. We're going to go to Uptopja. Uh, All of these places, I'm going to imagine, are going to be easier for you to say once you've been, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Exactly. And there's some beautiful shrines there that we're going to be visiting. And then we're going to head to uh, Padua and Venice in Italy. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah. 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 I hear nothing but wonderful things about Padua. 
and like the Scrivegni Chapel and, and just some real highlights. I've been listening of late to a, an audiobook on the history of Florence. And of course, a lot of the artists that got their start in the Renaissance Florence would go on to, you know, perform their art and, and create great art in places like Padua and because they would get commissions from, um, you know, local rulers and, and uh, cities and things like that. And, and Padua apparently is one of the gems that doesn't really get visited terribly often. Uh, and so that definitely is on my bucket list now of places to go. So how exciting for you to get to go and, and pray and tour and be with people who are excited to be there with you and Father Leo. What a great trip. Yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm very much uh, looking forward to it. I've never been to any of these places. Before. I've been to Italy before, but not Padua and Venice. So I'm very much looking forward to visiting some place I've never been before and, you know, get to know our Blessed Mother deeply and more intimately. So yeah. looking forward to it. Oh, how fun. How are things going with you? Things are good. Yeah. So school is, uh, graduation is this coming weekend. So the school year is over. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I've worked in higher education for coming up on 25 years now. And one of the things that I've always joked is that campus is fantastic when there are no students around because it's just beautiful yeah. <laughs> and you have like the, the full rain. Of course, you know, a lot of the restaurants on campus and all those sorts of things are closed, but uh, no, it's uh, people clear out. And, and of course, it's very exciting for the students that uh, graduate. We actually graduated about 130 of our Soren fellows. And so it's exciting to see what they're going to go off and, and do with their educations now. You know, St. Well, Blessed Basil Moreau, uh, the founder of the Congregation of Holy Cross, wrote that the, you know, the role of, of a Catholic educator is to so form students that they make prayers of their educations. And that's really what our, our hope and prayer is for all the graduating students at this time of year, particularly those that, that I've had the pleasure of getting to work with here at uh, Notre Dame and course at uh, the University of Portland where we worked together and so just really yeah it's a it's a joyful time of year but uh, it's uh, it also means that the the pace of life changes uh, on university campuses come mid-may you know end of May and uh, it's a glorious time of year yeah you know one thing I was thinking of when you were talking so many times uh, when I'm at parishes doing missions I hear from parents and grandparents about their children who are away from the faith, you know, and, and you look at what's going on in our culture, it seems kind of hopeless. But then you hear about the Soren Fellows and uh, so many others who are graduating from universities where their Catholic faith is such an important and integral part of their life and part of their college experience. You know, so you have a counterbalance there to those who have, you know, finally went to high school and, you know, was in youth group and all that stuff and then fell away from the faith and those who maybe found or they had their faith restored during their college years, now going to go out and live the faith with passion and conviction in the world to be a people of influence in different spheres of life and in different vocations that God has called them to, to infuse that, that secular environment with the values of faith, I think is, uh, is wonderful. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of hope in this culture of hopelessness. Yep, I think you're absolutely right. The uh, it's funny chatting with students, some of our student workers during the uh, during the academic year, and just listening to them, you know, and the way that they practice their faith, the way they're genuinely happy to be Catholic, you know, um, they did a Eucharistic 
pilgrimage on campus uh, on the third Sunday of Easter. And they had about 150 students come out in the middle of a Sunday afternoon when it was kind of drizzly and rainy on campus. And they wandered around campus. You know, they, they um, had a wonderful procession that was led by the uh, rector of the Basilica and a couple other Holy Cross priests from campus. And uh, it's it's inspiring. It really is to see that, no, that the faith is alive and the students are growing in the faith. And so you're right. It's, it's not all gloom and doom. It's, it's inspiring to us. And that's really what we need to see is, you know, who was it? Whitney Houston said, I believe the children are the future. And uh, believe it or not, that's so doubly true in the faith. We hand on what we ourselves have received. And uh, we are joyful to have received the faith ourselves and joyful to see the next generation picking it up and running with it, too. Yes. Amen. Amen. Well, Ken, I've very much been enjoying our conversation about the fathers of the church. Indeed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to, to introduce people to these, these men who really help lay the foundation for the faith that we have today to help us broaden our understanding, the correct understanding of the different truths and tenets of our faith that are really form the foundation of Catholicism. And so uh, who are we going to talk about today? Well, today we're going to meet the father of church history. Uh, his name is Eusebius of Caesarea. And Eusebius uh, was a bishop and a very prolific writer who uh, was born in the mid-3rd century and actually participated in the Council of Nicaea. And so Eusebius of Caesarea was born in somewhere between 260 and 265 in the town of Caesarea Maritima, which is, uh, so Caesarea was the name of multiple towns uh, during the uh, Roman Empire. And so Caesarea Maritima is the town that Herod the Great actually had named after Caesar, Caesar Augustus, in order to impress him. Uh, so this is the town that's actually on the coast of modern-day Israel. It's just uh, north of Tel Aviv. And it was basically the Roman capital of Palestine. And this is where Eusebius was born. And of course, he was born in 260 to 265. So this is before Christianity is legal in the Roman Empire. He studied under Pamphilius, who was a priest of Caesarea, who himself had established a school of biblical theology and a library in the town of Caesarea. And Pamphilius was um, a disciple, although he never met Origen. Origen was a, a theologian in Antioch and who is a, a very much very influential in uh, biblical theology and biblical interpretation, uh, particularly uh, on the ideas of allegory and kind of reading the scripture. So when we think of the four senses of scripture, we are thinking of a lot of that is influenced by the work of Origen. And this is what Pamphilius, uh, the bishop, uh, who was, a, I should say, who was a priest of Caesarea, this is the sort of uh, school that he established, and he then became the teacher of Eusebius of Caesarea. So Eusebius um, learns biblical theology, learns uh, the faith, really, from Pamphilius, and his literary work that he began writing uh, once he kind of, you know, had been a student, uh, his literary work, of which there are, as I say, quite extensive writing, 
uh, it reflects the course of his life. So it reflects the discourse of the day, the things that were important in being talked about among Christians and even interacting with the world. So at first, he occupied himself with works on biblical criticism in line with the school of Antioch, which, as I mentioned, was uh, essentially kind of founded by Origen. And then afterward, during the persecutions under the emperor Diocletian and Galerius, Eusebius turned his attention to writing about the martyrs, both the martyrs that were before him, so the historical martyrs, and the martyrs of his own time. So he was very much, again, connecting what was going on in the church with what had always happened in the church. He's seeing people suffering for the faith around him left and right, and he's connecting that with the tradition and with what had been handed on. And Eusebius really realized that we think of the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is what Eusebius, an idea that Eusebius helped develop and establish. So then this, in his writing about early uh, martyrs, it led him to study the history of the whole church. And so Eusebius's most famous work, and the one for which he is most highly regarded, is called the Ecclesiastical History. And it was a history of the church from the apostolic age until basically his own contemporary time. The Ecclesiastical History traces the line of the succession of bishops, and the different dioceses and bishoprics uh, that were spreading throughout the, uh, the known world at the time, such that it's from Eusebius that we actually understand the apostles that established each see and the succession um, from that time until his own. The ecclesiastical history runs from, as I say, the apostolic age until about 324. So he stops writing it just at the cusp of the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325. So it's considered, even though his writing isn't necessarily consistent or always excellent, he does actually quote a lot of documents that would otherwise be lost. So Eusebius is particularly important as a historian for preserving the texts that become then. He's not necessarily the the original writer, but it's through him that we preserve so much else which was lost. And that's why, actually, historians really look to Eusebius as, a, um, as an important writer uh, so that we didn't lose that which came before him. After writing the ecclesiastical history, he then went on to also write a history of the world, the, the secular world, uh, which is called the Chronicle. Eusebius, of course, being a Christian, viewed the movement of history, however, as always keyed to Christ. Christ is the Lord of history. And so even a secular history is really just a preparation for salvation history. And we, of course, as Christians, we we know this, right? Paul writes about in the fullness of time, Christ was born. The whole idea of the fullness of time is that the history of the world was preparing to receive its Savior. And it's from that moment, from the incarnation, that everything flows forward. And, of course, even here in our own day and age, we think about, uh, you'll see in academic writing, they no longer use A.D. and B.C. They no longer use Anno Domini and before Christ. They use Common Era, C.E., and before the Common Era, B.C.E. 
which is okay, fine. We understand, you know, the entire world is not Christian, but one is led to ask and you really have to poke back and say, what is the event that separates before the common era from the common era? What are we regarding as year one? And the reality is it's Jesus Christ. It's the incarnation of our Lord. And so try as much as, you know, the secular world tries to downplay the importance of Christianity. Even Eusebius, you know, Eusebius is a wonderful witness to Christ is the Lord of history. And so when we talk about Eusebius as the father of church history, we're talking about somebody who really did an important work of chronicling that which came before him so that we can see the effect and we can see that which we received ourselves. When we say that, you know, the faith that is handed on to us from the apostles, we're doing what Eusebius has witnessed to. Yeah, and that, that's really important. And, you know, in the culture today, there's a deeper sense of history, getting to know history better. There's all these places where you can go and get your DNA tested. Right. Right. And, and, and figure out your family tree. That's very, very popular today. And so people are just trying to, to learn, who am I? Where am I from? You know, where did I descend from? What, what's, what other uh, cultural blood flows through my veins, you know? And so for us as Christians, it's the same thing that Eusebius helps us to do to look back on our history. Who, who are we? Where do we come from? You know, yes, of course, we all you know, were born, in a sense, at, in the baptismal font, you know, and, and are descended from Christ, if you will. But to learn the history, those who came before us, as we hear in the Eucharistic prayer, marked with the sign of faith, you know, those who helped lay the foundation for the faith that we have today, you know, those who taught, those who lived, those who gave their lives for, for Jesus and the faith. So it's important, I think, to understand our past so we can um, have a clearer vision of, of our future. You know, so we just we don't just throw the past out. Right. I think it's important to learn about the past and, and also so we don't make mistakes moving forward in the future as well. We don't we don't uh, make mistakes of, of the past, but we want to move forward with uh, learning from the mistakes of the past so we can grow more deeply in our faith in the future. I think that's absolutely true. The. Uh... You know, it's funny. We think of the bishops as the successors to the apostles. And as you say, you know, these days everybody will go ancestry DNA and and all that sort of thing. We have these same sort of records in the church, right? There's a reason why we actually are very meticulous in baptismal records and, and in sacramental records, because these show our relationship in the family line of Christ, in the family, you know, we're baptized into Christ and baptized into his death and resurrection. We, we become Christians. And those records become then our touchstone. And such is the, the record of Eusebius of Caesarea. In his ecclesiastical history, he actually tracks down who ordained who, who was bishop of who. And there are websites even today, a website I visit quite regularly, catholichierarchy.org, is one that, you know, anytime I have a question about who's the bishop of so-and-so, and oh, wasn't that a bishop? Didn't that bishop work there? And things like that. This is a project by a layperson who tracks all of the changes in bishops around the world, you know, as bishops retire, as new bishops are appointed, as they pass away. Um, this guy has created this fantastic database that is searchable, and, and it's basically a modern-day history of the church, the local church spread throughout the world. 
and it's a fantastic resource. And these are the same sorts of things like what Eusebius did. Another one of the uh, important works that he did was called um, the Onomasticon. And that's a fantastic word, Onomasticon. It means the, the on the place names in sacred scripture. This was a guide that he wrote to, um, of all the place names that are mentioned in the scriptures, he tracked down where they were, how far away they were from one another. And his important work that was done in the th- late third century remains for us today, for archaeologists and for those who study, it remains an important reference so that people know where the various places were. When we say, and you've been to the Holy Land, I've been to the Holy Land, you know, we say, oh, in the Kidron Valley, Christ, you know, went with his apostles across the Kidron Valley and and up to the Mount of Olives. We only know where some of these places are because Eusebius of Caesarea actually did the research back in in his own time. And remember, he was of Palestine. Caesarea is in Palestine. And so he it's not like he was writing about some place that he only read about. He was writing about places that he could visit himself. And he could tell you how far they were apart from one another. This is a fantastic resource to us. Um, and especially because, you know, what, what do we say that the Holy Land is the fifth gospel? You know, we hear the four Gospels and we hear the stories of the life of Christ in the early church, in the Acts of the Apostles. But then when you get a chance to go and walk there and you get a chance to see these places, you get a chance to actually see what it means to go up to Jerusalem. All of these sorts of things, again, are witnessed by Eusebius and by all of the, uh, the um, bishops and priests and the faithful who came before us. And so this is a fantastic resource that, that we owe great thanks to Eusebius for. Wow, that's awesome. You know, um, in graduate school, uh, we read his ecclesiastical history. Um, so that's the one book I have by, by sure. Eusebius yeah. in, my, in my collection. Um, but it's, it's very uh, eye-opening, you know, it, and it's good to see, you know, um, some people question you know, uh, the origins of the Catholic faith, you know, when did the Catholic faith begin and, and um, you know, uh, where where do we descend from? And Eusebius does a fantastic job chronicling those details, you know, because they are important. Yeah. Um, you know, w- w- when people say, uh, you know, they said, uh, oh, you're, you're, you're Catholic, you know, and, you know, and I, so they, they see no difference between that and our, you know, our Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, because uh, we all come from Christ. But wait a minute. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, says, uh, to, he says the, the, to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And in Matthew 18, he says, you know, if you have something against your brother, have, work it out among yourselves. If, it, if that doesn't work, bring some witnesses. If that doesn't work, take it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. So uh, my church the church, the church. And it, even Paul says that the, the church is the, the pillar, in First Timothy is the pillar and bulwark of truth. Not the Bible, the church. Right. So what church are they talking about? <laughs> you know, what, what church are they talking about here? Because, uh, you know, look at the other ones, Calvinism, you know, uh, uh, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, um, you know, Charles, Charles Taze, Russell, Jehovah's Witnesses, Ellen Good White, Seventh-day Adventist, you know, all those, you know, they, they can trace their history back to a person, right? To a particular human being right. at a particular 
time, mostly after the uh, the 16th century. But Jesus talks all the way back in the first century about a church. So, <laughs> again, looking at the history and looking at what they talk, there's no question or doubt that it's a Catholic church. Yeah. These are, you know, uh, who was it? Um, St. John Henry Newman? To be deep in history is to become Catholic, you know, something to that effect. The more you read history, the the more you realize that the the true church really is established by Christ, and it's handed down. It's not something that we create ex nihilo, as it were. You can't just pick up a book and say, I am now going to start my own church. That's not how Christ, who we are baptized into a relationship with him and with everyone else who's baptized into Christ. And that is something that we receive. Um, nobody picks up the book Dune and decides to start a, you know, a church of, of uh, Frank Herbert. No, it's not quite like that. It's actually a relationship with the living God. And Eusebius is a, a fantastic witness. Um, I will say this. So he, he became Bishop of Caesarea in 313. He knew and was friendly with Arius, the the uh, priest who mm-hmm. is the namesake of the Arian heresy that was that began to tear the church apart and really was very violent and that led to the Council of Nicaea. Um, he was not himself. Eusebius was not an Arian. He presented a creed that uh, before the bishops uh, that um, kind of later, as you know, he was suspected of being an Arian, but he was not, uh, as, as later kind of history has shown. Um, he dies in May, th- uh, May 30th of 339. But I will say this, he used to be venerated as a saint, but he is no longer on the current calendar. Um, and so we call him Eusebius of Caesarea rather than Saint Eusebius of Caesarea. But we do regard him very much as the father of church history. And so for that, he's very much remembered as an important father of the church uh, and a witness to the apostolic tradition as handed down uh, from generation to generation. And that's why Eusebius is somebody that, uh, that we can look to and, and honor as the father of church history. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, and I, and I hope people will really get appreciation for the, the the rich depth of the church, you know, you talk about uh, and we have a, a, a meal. You talk about depth of flavor, you know, <laughs> and building layers of flavor. Yep. And and that's what the church does over the years. It builds these wonderful layers of history. That's you know? right. So, so awesome. Well, friends, we've come to the end of our time together, but uh, you can download previous episodes of the show at materdeiradio.com. You can also. Uh, connect with us on Facebook. We are at Living Stones Media. But Deacon, until we gather next week together, might we have a blessing. May Almighty God bless you and keep you and protect you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com. I love it when a plan comes together.